When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to episode 128 of Wheel Bearings. We have a very special guest with us today. Oh, first of all, I'm Sam Abul Sandwich from Navigant Research. I'm Dan Roth from Forbes. I'm Rebecca Lindland from Rebecca Drives. I didn't know if you were going to go or not. I was sleeping <laughs> up and I was like, oh, dead air. And, and, and joining us today from across the table from me here is Brian Seleski. Nice to see all of you again. Welcome, Brian. Great to, great to be here with you, Brian. Uh, we're, uh, we're sitting here in, uh, in Dearborn. Uh, Dan, uh, Brian's in town for, uh, for a day or two. And, uh, we managed to, uh, wrangle him for a little conversation about autonomous vehicles. So I get to talk to Brian on a pretty regular basis. So I don't want to dominate the conversation today. So why don't I let, uh, you two go first with your questions? All right. You know what? I'll, I'll let Rebecca go first because I'm sure she has better questions. <laughs> You're well, also so, polite with one another. I know, right? <laughs> you just wait. Don't worry. It, deter it deteriorates very quickly. Okay, good. All right. <laughs> it goes off into tangents that you wouldn't believe. Yeah. <laughs> so, Brian, it's so nice to talk to you. We met a couple of years ago in San Francisco um, at, I coincidentally, at a Ford event as well when I moderated a panel, I think, that you we were on and speaking. So, when in that conversation, you know, really Argo was fairly new and, and the investment that Ford had made was fairly new as well. And there's been a lot of, a lot of changes since then. But one of the things that I'll, I'll never forget is that we talked about the geographical specificity of driving behaviors. And you had mentioned like the, I think it was like the Pittsburgh left. And I had talked about the, the Michigan left and then the, Boston jug handles and all these crazy ways that, that we manage left-hand turns in our world. And so I wondered, is that still part of the conversation? If so, how is that coming along? Just kind of where does that stand? Yeah, no, it's uh, it's one of my favorite topics is all the possible <laughs> left turns <laughs> styles in, in the U.S. and abroad. Um, so, you know, at Argo, we're, we're testing in five different cities now, all of different, um, styles and, and, and geographies. So we've got, um, you know, we've got Austin and Miami and DC and, and, you know, in just those three alone, there's a lot of differences. And so, you know, by taking that sort of testing approach, it's been very helpful because we get to encounter all the different, you know, myriad of types of not just left turns, but, um, w more broadly speaking, how, the different actors in the world behave differently, right? So we get a, we get a sense or a measure of where the dangerous intersections might be. Where do uh, pedestrians likely uh, jaywalk? Um, we get a sense for um, 
how things change over time and over seasons. And all of that helps us just make the system better and help us to better anticipate and predict what those, you know, what those road users are going to do. Um, Miami, there's a huge scooter population. Same thing in Austin, becoming more prevalent in DC. Um, and, you know, getting experience in how they tend to navigate and, and the types of routes that they take and how they behave. All, all of that information helps us just make our system better. So it's definitely in the conversation. It's not just left turns. It's all variety of, of things that we that we learn when we go to a city. It's fascinating. Brian, uh, you know, one of the things that is particularly challenging about this is, you know, how when you think about going to a production system with this, you know, you've got all these different types of driving styles. Is that something that your system is going to be able to just automatically adapt to those when you go into a new city? Or are you going to have, you know, like maybe different calibration sets or different rule sets, you know, that you deploy in different cities? Yeah, I think a good way to put it is different calibration sets. So it's one system, it's one platform. It's not like we're engineering a whole new system for each city. Um, but we're also not going so far as to allow it to do what would be called online learning. So the ability for an algorithm to sort of teach itself on the fly. And the reason we don't do that is because um, what if it learns the wrong thing by accident? That would be bad, right? And so what we want to do is um, we want to take these systems, uh, um, our vehicles that we map with and that we, we go, when we first go into a city, we sort of have a launch plan of how we um, not only map the city, but also get experience, all the experience that I just, that I just talked about. And so there's sort of an ad adaptation period and we get to see how well the system we've built, uh, works in the city, where are some of the areas for improvement. And then we make sort of equivalent of parameter changes, um, uh, that, that tune it to that environment. And, and that has to do with sort of how confident it drives. It has to do with how it behaves at certain intersections. There may be some intersections where there's a social protocol where um, you don't ever block, we call it block the box or don't block mm -hmm. the intersection. Um, uh, there's other intersections where if you don't do that, you're never going to make your way through. And so we learn those types of things and, and teach the um, autonomous driving system what the best way is to, uh, to, approach, to approach those types of intersections and other types of scenarios. So uh, back in 2017, you told uh, Kristen Korosek of the, the she was at the Verge at the time um, that you wanted to give cars the eyes, the ears, the brains um, they need to operate without humans, and your timeline was 2021. <laughs> so that's now a year and a half away. Um, so how how are you doing with that? Is that goal still 2021, or are we we learning as we go that we're going to need more time? Well. You know, the goal and what I said at the time is the goal was 21 and, and, you know, that still is an important year and an important milestone for us where, you know, we expect to have initial deployments. Um, but the scale of those deployments is going to vary, um, over time and it's going to be a slower ramp than I think what most people, um, would suggest in the industry. You know, our, our view is that, um, these vehicles are going to uh, get deployed and, and, and operate in small sections of the city, limited number of vehicles, and then it will grow over time. Um, it's going to grow where we learn the demand is. It's going to grow based on the types of partnerships we have with businesses in these cities. Um, and, and it's going to, you know, it's going to be a gradual, uh, a gradual deployment. Um, 
in terms of, and, and that's, that's just sort of the natural cadence of building any business, right? Yeah. There's, it's an, it's an, it's an evolution. It's not a revolutionary thing. Sure. Yeah. It's just um, not a gotcha question. It's just, <laughs> I'm checking in. Yeah. No, no, no. I'm just giving, I'm giving the full answer, right? Cause I think this is an important topic to, you know, clarify for people. Um, the, now, now I separate everything I just said from when is the driver removed from the car? You can start to build these businesses and learn in market with the driver in the vehicle. Um, and, and still monitoring the self-driving system. And I think the question of when the driver gets pulled is a whole separate question and, and is in parallel to everything I just described. Um, and for me, it's, it's not just, you know, when does the data tell us that it's safe and it's ready, but it's also it, when is the community ready to accept that? And I think that may vary city by city. Um, I think, I think, you know, policymakers will obviously have a say in this, uh, and, and, you know, to me, that's, that's, that's even, you know, another question in addition to what you just asked. When Waymo launched Waymo one in Chandler, Arizona last December, Mm -hmm. you know, one of the surprises to a lot of people was that they still kept the safety drivers in the vehicles and, and they, in fact, they're still there today. Um, do you anticipate following a similar pattern, you know, in 2021, you know, launching commercial deployments, but perhaps, you know, either in all or some of those, at least three cities that you've, uh, that have been identified now, Miami, DC, and, and Austin, anticipate potentially retaining the safety drivers for some period of time after that commercial launch? Yeah. So, you know, for me, I, it's hard for me to know exactly what commercial launches, you know, as I said earlier, I think it's, there's these initial deployments where, we're going to be um, serving people and businesses um, potentially, and and you know when it actually launches or what launch is to me is sort of a fuzzy thing, right? And as you start to learn and as you build these businesses, um, to me that takes a separate evolutionary path from when you pull the driver. I I don't tie pulling the driver to any of those particular milestones. To me, that's a separate question, and um, you know I, it's, it's so it's hard it's hard to link it to a date. Um, but I think what you saw with the Waymo deployment, um, you know, makes sense to me in terms of the, na- again, the natural evolution of things, which is they're simultaneously trying to stand up a business as well as prove out their self-driving technology. Um, and, and I think, you know, for them, that's, that's obviously two threads of development. I mean, and, and when it actually does deploy as well, when you, you talk about commercial deployment, what does that actually look like? I mean, is it, still individual cars or is it some other offering that's more efficient i mean you're thinking about efficiency too like you get back to a bus with a safety driver well that's that's a train (laughs) you know like how does how does commercial deployment actually sort of get out of the gate and does that look like people think it looks now where it's everybody's own individual car just drives itself or there's some other way that's it's more of a walled garden in some ways you know it starts off in ports which are you know, they're working on that solution, uh, or, you know, farms already have automated vehicles too. Like it's, where does it actually start? Right. No, it's a good question. So we probably have to unpack it a little bit. So I think for the first question is, is it personal car ownership or is it, um, some sort of shared fleet or a service? And in our view, it's the latter. It's, it's some sort of, it's some sort of service that's provided. And, and the reason for that is because of the cost of the technology is relatively high. Most people wouldn't be able to afford that to equip their own personal vehicle with, with all the self-driving tech. So the better way to offer it is to actually 
provide a service, whether it be to deliver something or to move people and to spread the cost of the technology over the, the lifetime of the asset. So, you know, imagine if the vehicle um, is able to operate for roughly 300,000 miles with some routine maintenance associated with it. Um, you can imagine spreading the cost over those 300,000 miles and all of a sudden on a per mile basis, it's not that expensive. So that's the idea on how um, I think this will be deployed uh, initially. In terms of the types of business models, you know, there's so many and that's what makes this field so exciting in my view. Um, even if you just, you know, a lot of people talk about, well, is it ride hailing or is it goods movement or is it both? Well, to me, there's, there's a whole bunch of slices within each of those. There's tons of different use cases in the goods delivery side alone, whether it be, um, last mile delivery door to door, or if it's going from one sort of, uh, you know, pickup drop off point to another, um, you know, there's all sorts of ways you can sort of slice this problem and, and, you know, to me, that's the challenge that I think everybody in the industry has is to sort their way through that and figure out what's the best way to marry uh, what the tech can do today uh, with the opportunity. And how does that change as the system matures and um, and as, um, you know, as logistics changes uh, over time? So that 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 whole thing is kind of a giant Rubik's Cube that I think everybody's wrestling with. Yeah, well, sure. And so especially oh, uh, go ahead, uh, Rebecca. Oh, I just, I, I just wanted to, to, cause we talk a lot about the sort of long-term plans of all this, but I want to get into a little bit more of like today, what in your mind, Brian, what's been, was there one thing that was easier <laughs> to accomplish uh, that you were surprised, like pleased about, or is there something that has just proven so much more difficult than you expected? And kind of more well, of a day to day thing. Yeah, I don't think anything's easy. <laughs> to be to be fair, I don't know. Um, George Hawks seemed to make it sound super easy. You just hack a bunch <laughs> of consumer stuff and use it off label, and, and it drives your car. Yeah, I mean, it, it is. I mean, it's it isn't too difficult to, you know, put together a smart team and and uh, and to build a prototype, right? But uh, uh, it sort of follows the eighty twenty rule, right? Um, I think to get eighty percent of the way there is not too hard, but the last twenty percent is super hard. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, may take even longer than it took the time to get to the 80%. So, you know, the, the, there's, that definitely applies here in terms of what's difficult. I mean, look, I think, um, I think the, the question that's before all of us is how do we best, uh, assemble, um, uh, a, a company that is, this is what I spend a lot of my time on. How do I build, how do we build a company that's going to be around and last, uh, uh, for a long period of time and that's going to, that's going to actually solve this in a meaningful way, right? I, I want to assemble a team and a team that's committed and mission driven that wants to, um, that wants to see the evolution of all these businesses develop and, and see the technology mature and move from one platform to the next and from one partner to the next. Um, how do we build a lasting, uh, brand and a lasting, uh, product that's going to really solve this problem in a meaningful way? And, and, and and that's, and that's what, well, and that's what we set out to do at Argo. And I'm, that's what I'm really proud about is that it, it all starts with the people. It starts with getting mission driven people who, um, you know, there's no drama. They just want to come to work and, and they want to solve this problem. They want to make, you know, they all have their different stories, but generally speaking, they want to see transportation be safer and more accessible. And, um, I think, I think that, that while, we're one piece in the overall puzzle and that we're focused on the self-driving system. There's a ton of challenging problems to work on there. And, and, um, you know, we're driven by, by the sense that 
we can build this and deploy it in a truly meaningful product, not just a prototype, but something that's actually going to be embedded as sort of Argo inside uh, in all of these vehicles and become a platform that um, that's going to, you know, enable more efficient, uh, more efficient ways to get from A to B in the future. I mean, that's what we're, that's what we're after. That's what we're, that's what we're driven by. And, and sure, there's a lot of challenges along the way and, and there's a ton of hard problems, but, but I think, you know, that's, that's why we exist. That's what gets us up out of bed in the morning. And, you know, to, to expand on that a little bit, you know, you've got partners here at Ford, uh, you know, and even within Ford, there's multiple teams that are, that are part of this. You know, you've got a team within Autonomous Vehicles LLC business unit that is working on the business models of, you know, how, you know, what's the, what's the consumer facing business of how they're going to deploy these things. Uh, there's Ford earlier this summer acquired, uh, Quantum Signal, uh, which is going to help a lot of the Ford teams with things like, you know, working around on the user experience around the vehicle, how people interact with the vehicle. Right. You know, it's, it's not nearly as simple as just, Building it, I mean, not that it building an AV stack is simple, but I mean, that is only one piece of a, a very large puzzle. Oh, you're absolutely right. I mean, this, you have to partner in order to be successful here. There's so many different aspects to the problem, whether it be user experience or the functional safety aspect, you know, how to build in all the redundant control systems, which you and I have talked about before, Sam, right? And in, into the, the, the vehicle platform. Um, you know, conventional vehicles today that are meant to be human driven are not at all ready to accept an autonomous vehicle stack. There's a lot of changes that need to be made there. And so the, our partnerships with Ford and now VW enable us to have the right close relationship with these uh, automakers to be able to make the changes necessary to adapt the vehicle to the AV stack and vice versa. And, and, and you know, it takes one team, one mission one, uh, you know, it, it, ta- it takes it takes a, a, a coalition of people across the supply base and our partners to actually be able to bring this to the world in a meaningful way. Well, and if you're going to own the cars, too, it sounds like this is something that you've thought about in terms of as it comes out, you know, that it's less individual ownership than it is um, some sort of service. Well, then you own them. You own the machine and you're trying to maximize its, its use. So it's it's got to also handle all kinds of conditions, you know, and that's, that's right. Yeah. And and I'll tell you one of the benefits there is you can actually, um, you can, you can do the routine maintenance in a predictable way, right? Because you own the, you own the vehicles, you can have, you can have great, you know, maintenance history and, and track every aspect of the lifetime of, of a vehicle. You can do proactive maintenance. Um, you know, the other thing is that, uh, with our, with our partners, right. Um, you know, automakers, one piece of the business that maybe doesn't get talked about a lot is their parts delivery and service network. Um, you know, Ford in the U S is, is enormous. The, their footprint. Oh right? yeah. From yeah a, that's from actually, dealer. Uh, that, that was one of the things that in, in the f- police fleet side of things, yes. um, yep. Ford was really, really, really good at that. And that's why a lot of fleets stuck with Ford. Even when uh, Daimler Chrysler jumped back in with the charger, they said, yeah, we can't get the parts. We can't get the support. Ford has that game that's right. locked up. So they know that's right. Stuff. And so when, that's right. So when it comes to keeping vehicles on the road and being able to uh, maintain them and, and to be able to get, you know, parts and service quickly and done properly, um, you know, there's, they have a huge advantage there in terms of fleet management. Just to follow up on that sort of car handle all conditions uh, question, you know, there's chatter about LIDAR and about, um, you know, stuff like FLIR, like infrared and stuff. So what what does your stack look like? What sensors are going to enable you to to actually drive fully self-drive in adverse weather 
without any kind of, you know, sort of special uh, measures, you know, like a person getting out there and scraping the sensors off. Like, how how are you going to manage that? Is that something that you've you've cracked yet? Well, so we've aligned around uh, LIDAR, radar, and camera. Each uh, sensing modality has its strengths and weaknesses. Um, you know, we're a big, we're a big believer that lidar is an important part of the equation. It's a uh, you know it it it, um, it operates in in three dimensions and is able to get a fair amount of range uh, if you're using the right instrument. Um, and it's it's an important part of the overall equation. Um, you know, strengths in one complement the weaknesses in the other. Uh, the all three mm. modes are super important. Um, all three modes have issues uh, in in really bad weather. So, you know, as an example, uh, fog uh, is is probably the hardest type of uh, sort of bad weather scenario to solve, mainly because both lidar and camera are, are heavily affected by it. Um, ultimately, changes completely what it can see and. Um, uh, it becomes a very different problem. Of course, when you think as a human, how does a human drive through fog? They make a heck of a lot of assumptions, right? right. <laughs> and, <laughs> totally. And so, Just assume it's all clear on the inside. <laughs> that's right. And and so it's right. And so this sort of requires what we would call optimistic planning. Um, oh, that's lovely. <laughs> and and uh, and and so is it impossible to solve? No, but it's but it's a, it's definitely among the more challenging weather conditions to deal with, and it's something that is on the roadmap that's kind of further out. Now, now f- light falling rain, we can handle that relatively well today. The challenge there is to uh, just have a really good sensor cleaning system to, bl- to bl- either blow or wipe the droplets off. Um, you know, falling snow a little bit harder because it sticks to stuff. It can freeze. Um, anyway, so, you know, each, each type of precipitation comes with its own set of problems. And yeah, there's a long tail associated with solving all of those things. Um, you know, it's hard to put a timeline on any of it. Uh, cause, because, and, and, and really we can build a great business really just going to cities where the weather is decent. And that's what I think you're going to see a lot of, uh, companies do and including us. And then over time we'll start as we solve and tackle those hard, hard weather problems, we'll start to scale elsewhere. Yeah. Um, recently, like earlier this summer, I think uh, you guys started getting your latest generation of test vehicles from Ford that the the sensor stack on the roof now has cleaning systems it does. integrated into that. How, how's yep. that working out for you? It actually works remarkably well, and uh, we've been able to operate in uh, falling rain that's relative, that's sort of light to moderate, let's say, pretty well. Um, it isn't perfect. You know, we're still iterating it. It was the first generation that um, that came out, but yeah, I mean, that was it's a really great system that that Ford came up with and how they. Um, part of how they integrated the sensors onto the car um you know and we'll continue to refine it i think one of the one of the funniest things about it um when they when they announced it was uh you know some of the testing they did they they developed a bug launcher yes, they to did. launch yes. bugs at, at the cameras <laughs> yeah. and they're using these yeah. air curtains to help deflect the bugs absolutely and and uh the <laughs> The, the people who get to test these vehicles, sometimes I'm envious because of some of the stuff that they get to do. Um, we do, we, we, we absolutely torture the, the vehicle on the test track and they're coming up with all kinds of crazy things. Remote controlled skateboards, you know, uh, uh, you know, fake pedestrians that jump out in the middle of nowhere, or drop from the sky, all kinds of things. <laughs> I remember being on actually on the Ford test track where they had like big giant things come out to test the emergency braking. It's terrifying. Yep. 
It is terrifying. It's yeah, absolutely it terrifying. <laughs> um, somebody, but it's very our... satisfying when you see the system work well, though. That's the yes. That's the no, problem. you're you're absolutely right. It it, it is. Um, one of our Twitter followers uh, wanted to know. I thought this was an interesting question about uh, infrastructure, and do you see lidar potentially being uh, used in infrastructure to help with uh, self driving cars, like busy intersections and stuff? Well, we absolutely see that as part of the the equation. Um, we're not building the system in such a way that we have to have it. But the way we look at it is that as cities begin to invest in smart infrastructure, whether that be, you know, cameras in the intersections that are monitoring throughput, um, whether it be vehicle to vehicle or vehicle to infrastructure communications, um, whatever the source it may be. We just view that data as another sensor input, right? We mm. view it as another input that helps complete our picture of what's around the vehicle and the state of the world. And we'll sure. use that to, um, to help us navigate it. You know, one of the places where it's, it's, it's really useful is where there's what we call occlusions at an intersection. So imagine we're getting ready to take a right turn and we'd like to take a right on red, uh, where it's allowed. And But there's a concrete pole or there's a barrier or something that prevents us from being able to see around the corner. Um, with the infrastructure, we can have better assurances of what's around the corner and what the safe action is to take. Without it, we're sort of creeping very delicately, much like a human would, to sort of peer around the corner and see if it's safe to go. Um, so, you know, that, that sort of infrastructure, I think, is a key piece. Uh, is it certainly a key piece? And, and where it's available, we want to use it. And, you know, uh, to add to that, you know, another one of the other companies that's developing this stuff, May Mobility, you know, the, the work they're doing here in Detroit, for example, one of the things that they do is they have roadside units mounted. They're, they're operating on fixed routes around downtown Detroit, and they have roadside units mounted on poles with cameras and uh, radio transmitters so that they're up where they can always see the traffic signals. So, because they're operating these little tiny gem electric vehicles. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of times when you're, you know, driving around the city, you might be stuck behind a truck or a bus. You can't see the traffic signals. Uh, so that, you know, they, they put those up there where they can always have a clear view of the traffic signal and they can transmit that information back to the vehicles. And, you know, information like that can, can be useful to help make the system a little more robust to add to that situational awareness. Absolutely. We talk about safety, uh, in a lot of different terms, but, you know, one of the ways to add to safety is to just have additional inputs about the state of the world, whether it be traffic lights or the positions of various objects, whatever it might be. Absolutely. Um, sorry to interrupt, uh, Rebecca. But, you know, one one more thing. Now that you're, um, you know, you've got a relationship with with Volkswagen, and I don't know if you've actually started working with them yet, or you're waiting until the deal is closed. Um, but you know, Audi, uh, for example, for the last couple of years has. Uh, they've had some vehicle to infrastructure communications in various cities where they're, they're using the LTE connection that's in the vehicle to get traffic signal information from the, the, the city's central traffic control computer. Uh, you know, is that something that you're looking at? integrating into into your system that sort of capability yeah it's something we would love to integrate in um, we haven't had uh, those discussions yet just because as you said we're sort of in this quiet period where we're waiting for regulatory approval for the deal to officially close okay yep I was wondering, you know, one of the areas that I think is really exciting is the commercial space. And you touched on this a little bit earlier, but, you know, the long haul truckers that we see and, and such. And are you working in that space as well to, to get some of this technology into those sort of semis and, you know, as they travel across the country? Yeah, we're definitely looking at it. Um, it, it is, uh, it's absolutely a, 
another interesting business case. Um, it's part of the, you know, overall goods delivery stack, right? And, and like I said, you know, goods delivery is, there's so many different use cases, different vehicle types and platforms and trips. Um, and you know, definitely long haul trucking is, is one piece of, is one piece of that overall pie. Yeah. Do you see most of these vehicles, whatever they eventually come to look like, do you see them as primarily electric or do you see them as having internal combustion engines as well? A combination? Just talk about that a little bit if you would. Well, you know, to in order to support the self-driving system, the vehicle needs to be electrified in some way, shape, or form. Uh, and whether that's a hybrid or a full electric or, um, you know, a giant uh, alternator or whatever it might be, <laughs> uh, um, you know, we're we're flexible in that regard as mm-hmm. long as we can, as long as the power system can meet our requirements. I think the um, I think the broader question, though, of, of what is sort of the, you know, what, what is the way of the future is I think electrification is inevitable. That's where everybody's going. And, and the key is, though, to work with the uh, vehicle manufacturers t- to um, sort of understand what we want to do near term and what we want to do in the long term and, and plug into their overall strategy, which uh, let's face it, it's not being influenced so much by uh, autonomous vehicles or autonomy. It's being influenced by fuel economy and regulation and standards, sure. right? For so sure. we want to be able to just sort of plug into their roadmaps. Yeah. Where does regulation fit into this? I mean, are they, is this something that you're constantly talking to them about or do you feel like it's, it's is it a barrier? Oh, no, it's not a barrier at all. We welcome discussions with regulators. We've had uh, great discussions at the federal, state and local levels where we where we operate. Um, you know, we welcome those discussions. We love to uh, educate and show folks where we are and, and sort of uh, help um, help make make what we're doing, um, you know, transparent so that they can understand uh, how the technology works to some degree. Right. Understand how we're thinking about the, how deployment might work. And, uh, you know, we, we see the policymakers as a as sort of an important constituency and, and folks that we need to be absolutely working very closely with. For when sure. you talk to regulators, do you do you feel like they have a sufficient understanding of the complexities of this technology and you know, do, they, do they grasp the issues around, you know, what – what needs to be done or, or perhaps what should be done in, in terms of regulation? Well, it certainly varies. Um, I mean, you know, these folks are, are um, you know, whether elected officials or staff, um, they come from all different backgrounds, right? And so um, uh, a lot of times what we find is is we just need to understand what their starting point is and then, um, and then sort of, you know, begin the educational process. I would say, though, that every... Every right, every person in sort of a regulator or policymaking context that we've met, they've all been extremely eager to understand and get that education and um, want to understand, you know, in basic terms, look, what is what are the good things this is going to do and what are the things that we have to watch out for and, and how do we deploy it in the in the right way? Um, and so as long as you have that sort of common starting point, I think everything goes really well. Well, I think that's the the thinking that we have to we have to train uh, us in the media and you folks in the industry that it's, it's building these things is we we sort of have to train everybody who's paying attention right it's got to be really frustrating when you talk about this stuff and a lot of the coverage is teaching the the public to expect that these are just going to pop out fully formed perfect work for everyone everywhere in all conditions and you know regular cars well, don't do that now 
So yeah, and we we aren't doing that, right? And that at least at Argo, we're not doing that. Um, uh, neither is neither is Ford. I, I, you know, the way I look at it is um, the education part of it is not what frustrates me. We enjoy that that aspect to it, and that's an important part of what we should be doing. Um, but you're right, the 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 expectation that somehow has been set in the press or in the mass media, I think is that, like you said, these are right around the corner. They're going to be operating everywhere. They're going to be in your lives, you know, day in and day out. That just simply isn't the case, right? Going back to what we discussed earlier, it's going to be relatively modest deployments that will grow over time and it will be done in concert with the, with the city and, and, the, and the community that we're serving. Yeah. And it may not even be all that exciting, right? There's a lot of low hanging fruit that can. Well, let me tell you, this stuff is not exciting when it works. <laughs> well, yeah, ideally. It's just a safe driver. That's the, that's what we're, that's what we're shooting for. Yeah. I mean, the, the no like, drama I, I, applies there as well, huh? Right. right. <laughs> I, I, I travel a lot and you know, when, when I arrive somewhere, you know, people inevitably ask, oh, how was your trip? And said, Uneventful, which is just the way I like it. Exactly. <laughs> totally. I don't know. I kind of like hitting air pockets and stuff when you're in flights. <laughs> you're so oh weird. Thrilling. Well, I'm not. Fl- I'm not flying with you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, Brian, what are what does it look like in other parts of the world in terms of development usage? Just talk to me globally. Yeah, I mean, I, I can speak to what I know, which is, I mean, obviously China's leaning in really hard. Uh, you know, AI in general is is a um, is set as a priority for that country, and they they want to they want to sort of gain ground as quickly as possible. And and uh, you know, it looks like they're entertaining ways to um, you know potentially even build cities from scratch, right? Which China can do yeah. with all the infrastructure necessary to to, to accelerate the yeah, it's the, crazy the speed of deployment. It is. It's crazy what they're able to do. Um, you know, uh, you look at Singapore, which is also leaning mm. uh, way in on this, and I think um, is is uh, is also taking a you know a, certainly a measured but um, and a, and a, as aggressive approach as possible to to see this sort of technology get deployed. And they also are in the you know they they have the right sort of system government system in place to be able to also be an accelerant to the deployment of this of this sort of technology. yeah. And there's just right culturally, it's appropriate as well. Exactly. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then, you know, if you turn, you turn into Europe and I, and I think Europe's a very complex, um, area it's, it's, um, uh, you know, it's an area that I think we're going to see, um, we're going to see a lot more unfold in the, in the, in the coming years, but each area sort of has its own story to tell and, um, about who's bullish on it and who isn't. Um, I mean, it re- almost really comes down even potentially to sort of a city by city level, uh, in, in Europe. Sure. That's fascinating. But um, one, one of the questions we had uh, from Twitter, again, was, uh, was Asia. You know, you mentioned Asia. And, you know, China has the – because of the nature of the, the government there, they have the ability to do a lot of things from scratch if they choose to do so. Yeah. Um, but you're not operating in China and, and uh, I don't think you have any – do you have any current plans to do that or, or – yeah, because there are some restrictions in China. Absolutely, yeah. No, our our, our focus right now is is U.S. first, um, and then and then with VW coming on, will be be uh, Europe, uh, it's, you know, particular parts of Europe. Um, we have nothing to announce in the way of of China or elsewhere at the moment. Okay. When you do want to break that news, please let us know. We'll have you back on. <laughs> I mean, we, you know, I mean, look, the, the, the answer is we, you know, we're always studying the mark, all of the markets, right? I'm just, you know, I'm being open with you about where our plans are. Today. No, no, no. It's just, and, and certainly it's going to be taking a system that's 
sort of designed and optimized for the for the U.S., you might have some things to learn if you go to a place like India or China, um, for sure. Uh, there will be pl- there, yeah, there'll be plenty to learn, and in China in particular, you know, the government has come out with um, you know a fairly uh, fairly rigid but open um, set of requirements that says, look, we you know they want to be heavily involved in the cybersecurity, they want to own the data, um, you know, there's a number of, they want they want to. You, know, you must you must be working with a Chinese company in order to do the mapping work. Uh, there's a number of requirements in China that um, makes it for makes for it to be a very different system. It's not just plug and play with you know what we would be doing in the U.S. And and speaking of mapping, um, you know, one of the questions on Twitter was about you know gating factors to move into more cities. Um, you know, you, you talked about you know understanding the the realities, you know, the behavior of those cities. But what about um, you know, once you choose to go into a new city, is that an expensive proposition to to go into a city? Um, you know, you do HD maps. You know, uh, what can you talk a little bit about? You know, once you've chosen, opted to go to a new city, what's what's the, what's involved in that process? Right. So when we first go to a city, we start to understand as much as we can about the where the demand is for the different types of businesses that we're that we're um, looking at. Um, and then we, uh, we send a small fleet. It, it, sometimes it's not even more than two cars. And uh, we start mapping the city. Uh, we start um, driving the streets. We get information uh, about sort of how the lanes are connected, um, you know, how wide each of the, the, the lanes are and, um, you know, where the traffic lights are positioned and various aspects of the rules of the road. That gives us sort of enough information to get the basics. We take that back process it, and then uh, create a map. Uh, that map then gets loaded onto the vehicles and is used to test out the autonomy system. And then again, just with a few, uh, you can do it with a pretty small number of vehicles, or sometimes we'll put, we'll put more depending on the size and, and, you know, how we're prioritizing things. And, uh, and then we'll start to test the autonomous system uh, and validate that the map is, is accurate um, and also start to learn pretty quickly, you know, where the system works well and where it needs some refinement. Um, and then we have a whole team that, you know, piles through the information that comes back from those tests and then starts to create, um, you know, work for the development team. And uh, that becomes a very much a, a process that happens day in and day out. And in general, the process can work pretty quick, pretty quickly. We can we can map a small downtown area um, in a day and be work and be operational within a week um, and then sort of expand gradually from there. And when I visited uh, your your offices last summer, uh, or summer of 2018, and saw you know the pro the, the the process that you've you guys have built up internally mm-hmm. for building maps, and um, you know today you you do all your own maps. Is that something going forward that you foresee continuing to do as you expand into new areas, doing doing your own maps or working with outside vendors? Well, I'll tell you, I would love to buy it if I could. Uh, the issue is that. Um, the way in which the vehicle uh, knows where it is in the city to a kind of a centimeter level of resolution. So we're talking very, very accurate. Um, it's better than even what basic unaided GPS could give you. Um, it, the way it does that is it actually uses these map, uses this map information and compares it to what its sensors see in real time and does sort of a matching process. Okay. Without getting into too much detail, that's essential to how we do the the uh the what we call localization or how to, how does the vehicle know where it is it turns out that because of that process um and because we're using the sensors on the vehicle the visual sensors to be able to 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 do that localization process that the maps are very 
coupled to the sensing configuration on the cars. And so if someone wanted to sell me an HD map, right, um, if, if the data was presented in a, or, or in a very different format than what we're expecting in terms of the types of sensors that are on our car, then it becomes very challenging to be able to use it, right? I can take any map in, in order to get street information, addresses, street names, that kind of thing. But, the types of maps we're talking about have uh, is not so much that type of data. It's more so um, information about sort of the broad 3D structure of the city all around me, so that I can do in a so that I can apply it to this this so-called localization problem. You know, there, there's there's another guy that runs a company that's doing some of the stuff that claims you don't actually need those HD maps. Do you do you foresee a time when that might be true? Uh, not probably in my lifetime. Uh, it's just it's it's too important of of a uh, piece of information that helps the vehicle understand um, everything about the world around it and and. You know, if nothing else, let's say algorithms advance uh, over the next couple of decades where it becomes less and less reliant on the map, you're still going to want a map to sort of gut check that those algorithms are doing the right thing. It's a great, any sort of prior information that can go through a QA process is, is, is really helpful and part is essential part of the safety case at the end of the day. It can be used to make sure the system is operating properly. Where does it go? And let's look out. 10 years. Is this on, you know, Argo AI chips that you guys are making and providing to, uh, you know, for, for sale or, or to Ford? And are they using it in, you know, now the technology has been downsized, Morse laws sort of applies, right? Where it just, it gets smaller and uh, cheaper with every generation uh, exponentially. Uh, what does it look like? What, where, do, where do you guys think it goes? Just, just to, to add to that, do you, do you foresee using custom, customized silicon for your systems at some point? Um, I, I can see us doing that at some point. Um, I, I think that the algorithms are maturing at such a rapid rate that there's a risk that um, if you invest in custom silicon too soon, that you've actually um, created a chip that no longer is relevant to the software that's running on it. Um, and so th there's a chicken. I bought a whole computer a like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, that's not good point. It's not a, not uncommon even in the consumer world. Right. Um, or, you know, you get the latest video game and it no longer runs. You gotta get new hardware. Right. Um, so it, 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 there's a, there's a, there's a process that, that we need to follow here where um, as when we think that the algorithms have stabilized to a point where it's worthwhile to invest, we'll do it. We're not at that point yet. So, so right now it's better to stay with a more general purpose compute platform than, than a, a custom one. Right now we're preserving for flexibility and, and then over time that will start to change. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yep. Okay. Are there other industries that you're working with as well, like shipping or um, aer aviation? Well, you know, our partners are um, talking to all sorts of different businesses to see, um, you know, what sort of services that that we can provide and to come up with as many use cases as possible for um, for automated vehicles. So, you know, th they're talking to people across all different types of uh, uh, all types of industries. And I think the challenge uh, from what we were talking about earlier is how do you prioritize and sort of slice that up so that you can marry up, um, you know, the the the, the problem or the opportunity with kind of what the technology is able to do now, near, and in the future. What about, um, you know, one of the challenges when, when you start looking at, you know, the business side of this is not just the, the vehicle, you know, transporting goods around the city or transporting people, but also, um, you know, the, 
the last hundred foot problem of how do you get whatever it is from the vehicle to a doorstep or to a locker or whatever it might be. Are you looking um, also at, you know, building the systems to power maybe, you know, small smaller robots that handle the, that last 100-foot problem? So we're not actively working in that area. Um, as you know, there's a lot of startups actually doing the kind of small delivery bot um, in that small delivery bot space. Um, you know, it, the the system we're building is very much focused at the moment on uh, the urban core and dealing with these, uh, you know, kind of crazy city driving scenarios. Um, uh, it can certainly be adapted, but that's not a focus at the at the current time. One more here from from Twitter. Um, you know, you've got Ford and, and now VW as as OEM partners. Are you looking at uh, additional partners, or you know, making your platform available, you know, as a product to additional companies if they maybe if they aren't necessarily equity partners? Uh, it's something that we're open to in the future. We're not doing it just yet in terms of making it open to you know non-equity partners. It's 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 we have the option to do that um, if the if it's the right business case. Um, but you know we're we're after uh, already a huge opportunity here in in just getting the Ford and VW fleets uh, sort of powered with our technology, and so that's very much our focus. Um, you know, again on another OEM or another investor, um, you know, the, there's there's still fundraising to go, right? This mm-hmm. is uh, as I've always said, this is a time, people, and capital intensive endeavor. Um, so we'll see where those roads take us. Um, but you know, nothing to announce at this time. Something that. Uh, Something that we're, you know, always looking for. Well, if someone, someone rings our phone, I'll answer it. How's that? Okay. <laughs> um, Brian, since I always tend to, to look at the consumer side of this, I'm interested in understanding how do, I mean, right now people don't even like electric vehicles because they don't understand them. And you mentioned the educational part of it. Um, but, you know, how, how do we work on getting people to trust these vehicles and to understand them and to see the benefits of them? Right. Yeah. No, this is a really important question around trust. And um, I, I'm not going to pretend that I have the answer. I don't think anyone does. I will say that uh, our approach is absolutely to be uh, as transparent as we can and to serve an, an educational role as much as possible so that um, so that we can help make what we're doing less kind of science fiction and more tangible and real. Um, I find that when we give people uh, rides in the car and we and we show them the care that we take in developing it and all the tests that we've gone through, many people, their comment is, wow, this is way better than my 16 or 17-year-old, right? Um, and, and <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think to me, we can, we can, we can climb that, that mountain um, a fair way with just those two simple ingredients of transparency and education. And those are things that we're, mm. we're looking to do, to do our part. You know, we have a, um, some of the cities, uh, we're particularly interested in just, well, how do you test these vehicles while the technology is not ready? And so we built out a, a, a portion on our website called how we test, which I think is, um, probably the most exhaustive description that any companies put out there in terms of, you know, just how we, how much care we take in training our test drivers and, 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 uh, how we, uh, how we are developing the technology. And we're going to continue to add on to that and, and also through other forums to try to, you know, bring people along for the journey who are interested in knowing more. Yeah. Uh, a big part of that, I think, is the, uh, the, uh, the no parking podcast that you're doing that you're going to be launching soon, uh, which is, you know, part of that educational effort. 
uh, which right. you know, I'm really looking forward to listening to that. And we actually, just before this show, uh, you and I and Alex Roy recorded an episode of that that'll be coming up in the in the coming weeks. Yep, uh, Alex, our always entertaining host, is uh, <laughs> sort of leading the charge. We've got a good mix of. Um, you know, folks coming out of the cities that we're testing in that are, um, you know, interested in, in what we're doing, as well as uh, folks who are kind of more technical. And so it's a great mix of dialogue around all things uh, automated vehicles. So it should be pretty cool. Well, I think one of the things that I, I really love about this technology, even though I think we can all agree we all love to drive, is uh, just the accessibility that it gives to people that can't drive, that are disabled in some way, the blind, you know, people that... I now have to depend on others. I just love the idea of them having that type of independence, um, especially aging populations and such. It's just, it's really, really, really exciting. I'm, I'm so happy you've been able to, to join us. We, we, we do as well. That's a, it's a huge, hugely important part of, uh, you know, the constituency that I think is, uh, obviously has an interest in seeing this technology, um, get deployed and, and we want to work with those, with those folks as well. All right. Well, Brian, I really want to thank you again for, for joining us today. This, as always, great conversation. It's always great to talk to you about, about what's going on in this space. And, um, thanks. And, uh, Rebecca, Dan, any last thoughts? Uh, you know, I, I just wonder if you weren't doing, <laughs> if you weren't doing autonomous vehicles, what, what would you be doing? Oh, wow. Um, you know, I love woodworking. If, if I was uh, independently wealthy, uh, I, I probably would still be doing this, actually. I love, self, I love the self-driving car thing. So, so you want to be Ron Swanson. But yeah, so in, to some who degree, doesn't? yeah. Or who, who's the guy from Parks and Recreation? That's Ron Swanson. Yeah, is that Ron Swanson? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 exactly. I would, uh, that, that, that would be great. He seems to kind of work when he wants to. Otherwise, he's in his barn, like, building something. That's, mm-hmm. that's me. That's awesome. All right. <laughs> yeah. Sounds good to me. Being able to afford anything is the problem. That's right. That's right. That's right. Well, thanks for having me. All right. Thanks, Brian. We'll we'll wrap it up and uh, we'll talk to you all next time. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.